Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 112, recorded on April 7th, 2021. The Cloud Pod bots are in control. Good evening, Peter, Ryan, and Jonathan. Hello. It is another lovely day here. It's April. It still feels like April 2020, but it is 2021. I checked the calendar. At least it says so. It's been a busy week in the cloud, as usual. First up, though, I just wanted to mention that uh, we just finished our Q1, and we had the most listeners of the show ever. And so welcome to all of our new listeners out there. And you know, I want to remind you all that there is a fantastic Slack community that we're building out there. If you go to our website, you can get registered for that and check out our Slack team, talk to other people, listen to the show. Uh, and if you are not interested in Slack team, but you still want to help us support us, you can always go give us a review on iTunes or you know, check out our merchandise or any of the other amazing things that we're doing to try to build cloud awareness in the community. So please do that if you're interested and to help us out or tell a friend, you know, even just telling a friend, hey, I listened to this great podcast. You should check it out. That's always helpful too. Ryan looks perplexed. Like, great podcast? I saw, I saw the hesitation. I was trying to think of like ways where I could invite people to correct all the errors I make, just factual errors on the show. But then I wanted to you know, put a positive spin on it. Yeah. Someday, someday people will add you on Twitter and tell you you were wrong. And so that'll be an amazing day. It'll happen That's at some point. That's when you know you've made it. That's yes. when you know you really made it. The true people on Twitter success. now correct you from the podcast. The vitriol, the hatred, the <laughs> anger. The first story up is a sad story. You know, it's time to say goodbye to a good friend of ours called Mesos. Uh, for those of you who were in containers many years ago, before Kubernetes, before Stalker Swarm, there was a thing called Mesosphere, and it was supposed to be the bee's knees of containers. And so they uh, eventually got spun off into the Apache Foundation, and apparently this week Apache has decided to send Mesos to the attic to collect dust. And so this is the end of the Mesos era. The company, the enterprise company behind Mesosphere and was trying to actually sell it as a product, they relabeled to D2IQ about a year ago or a year and a half ago, we talked about here on the show, and pivoted to Kubernetes. And so really it's just been the open source uh, version of Mesos really out there from the Apache Foundation. And now with Apache saying, uh, this is the end. It may get forked and maybe someone out there will still contribute to it and still be really excited about it. And there are some companies that do use it, I'm sure. But you know, ultimately, the community is walking away from Mesos, unfortunately. It was a pretty cool idea, and I loved the concept around Mesos more as a PaaS, fully functional PaaS, instead of just uh, container orchestration. But yeah, I mean, seeing it live, it's pretty heavy to run pretty much anywhere. So I'm not surprised. I remember when the, the DCOS, as they called it, <laughs> and it was just massive and hard to install and complicated, just like Kubernetes. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just amazing that Kubernetes has won out so handedly over the last few years and really taken down ECS and everybody else, Swarm, Mesosphere now. Uh, just everyone is on the Docker Kubernetes bandwagon as the, as the go-to solution. I think Nomad, HashiCorp's Nomad is the last solution I know of then for non-containerized workloads. Yeah. Yeah, Nomad's still there, for sure. Wasn't wasn't Chef Habitat also somewhat based on containers as well? Chef Habitat was its own thing. Years later, I still kind of only barely understand Chef Habitat. (laughs) I don't don't even know if they're really still supporting Chef Habitat. I I haven't checked in on that in a while. Especially since the acquisition. You know, the big question, you know, we were talking a little bit in the pre-show is, you know, is Kubernetes here to stay forever or does someone eventually come up with something new to replace Kubernetes? Because right now, all the momentum, the community, everything is going great for Kubernetes as far as I can tell, other than it's a complex animal. Uh, you know, we do have people like VMware coming into the space, trying to simplify the complexity, trying to really get it to be more enterprise ready. I think it's going to go through a very rapid maturity curve in the next few years, but then does that leave space for someone to come in and say, you know, I'm going to displace Kubernetes for XYZ reason? It definitely a surprise that such a complex technology has gotten so popular so quickly because we definitely see people struggling with some of the details of that platform. But I can't imagine someone going out and building something from the ground up that's more simple and, you know, winning over the Kubernetes crowd. It's going to be tough. That's a pretty big flywheel right now. It's popular with the people who like complexity on a daily basis. It's, it's popular with the development community who, who enjoy that kind of thing. I would say it's less popular with the people who have to own and operate these systems at scale in production. That's true. Even like Google and Facebook still run their own sort of containerized platforms internally. And I know that other companies have chosen that as well, like to build something internally. But that was large, I think that's largely for historic reasons, like they had already started down that path. I see cloud-native sort of startup companies 
going straight to Kubernetes. I see legacy, like really legacy big corporations deciding that they're going to standardize on Kubernetes. It's amazing to me how many companies I see saying, hey, that's going to be our standard. What does it mean to standardize on Kubernetes though, where you, know, you run it in a data center, it looks like one thing. If you use EKS, it looks a little bit different. If you use Azure's Kubernetes, that's a little bit different. I mean, what does it mean to standardize on Kubernetes? Yeah, and I mean, oftentimes it's one of those platforms and only one of those platforms. We're standardizing on EKS, we're standardizing on AKS, we're standardizing on GKE. You know, at some point, hopefully we get to the point where all of the managed basically cluster offerings support federation and maybe, you know, it, it looks a little different. It looks like, hey, you know, we've got our control plane that we're leveraging and we can actually leverage that to run workloads anywhere we want on any managed or unmanaged cluster. I see it being kind of akin to the, you know, the whole travel to VMs, you know, from servers. I think it'll be a very similar. There's definitely leaders in space like VMware, but, you know, there's still people running on all kinds of different hypervisors and and running on that. I think Kubernetes will be sort of the same type of space where it's all sort of built on that same sort of technology, but there'll be individual stacks and it'll be a slow transition over many years, just like it was to running on virtual machines. The big thing everyone keeps saying is serverless is eventually going to replace Kubernetes, but I just, I haven't seen that happen yet. And I see serverless and Kubernetes moving more towards each other than anything uh, in the short time with, you know, Knative and some of the other things we're seeing with being able to run containerized runtimes as part of your Lambda function or as part of a function in general. There's this argument that, you know, serverless is going to take over the world, but yet I see them both running towards each other at full speed. <laughs> and so they're going to crash somewhere in the middle. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that pans out long term. Let's move on to uh, AWS. So apparently, AWS Shield Threat Research Team says that up to 51% of your traffic heading into a typical web app originates from scripts running on machines, also known as bots. And some of these bots are wanted, and some of them are unwanted. Wanted bots, of course, are things for indexing or monitoring, SEO analysis, or search index performance. Uh, then others are you know, vulnerability scans, content being stolen from your website, or all other kinds of terrible, terrible things. And so to help address this, uh, you can always enable WAF. And so Amazon WAF has been available to to you. There's a set of managed rules to you, but they were not very configurable and they had some issues, uh, especially if you wanted to say like this bot I'm okay with, but that bot I'm not okay with. There wasn't a lot of granularity unless you want to write your own rule set, which defeats the whole purpose of managed rules. So to help address this, Amazon is releasing AWS WAF bot control to identify, raise the visibility of, and take action against common bot traffic. And it's fully integrated into the AWS WAF and can be centrally managed by your AWS firewall manager for enterprise use cases. Uh, the bot control analyzes request metadata such as TLS handshakes, HTTP attributes, and IP addresses to identify the source and purpose of a bot. It then categorizes them into scraper, SEO, crawler, or site monitor. And once the bot control recognizes the bot, you can then block the traffic coming from unwanted bots or allow it through uh, if you are good with that. This does work just like the WAF managed rule groups. It does leverage a new capability called AWS WAF labels, which are metadata added to the request as a result of a matching rule statement. And all of this comes together to emit CloudWatch metrics and filtering basic for your WAF implementation. Uh, you are charged $10 per month for each time bot control is added to your web ACL, an additional $1 per million request for process by bot control. And these are in addition to the AWS WAF fees, uh, but there is a free tier, which includes up to 10 million free requests per month. Nice. Do you know if they included like tar pit, like throttling on bots instead of just blocking? So they did have a scope down capability, which is also new that allows you to scope down where the bot can go. And so like if you have a bot that can check these parts of the website, but not other parts of the website, so you can do some scope down things and say, you know, block it if it goes here. Uh, that also allows you to reduce costs for some of the managed rules. So if you know, you know, it shouldn't go to the next managed rule because of this type of request isn't valid, then you can block it there, but then allow it through different sections so you can reduce costs. Like there are some of that kind of in place, but I don't really think there's exactly what you're looking for today. Yeah, because we actually have, I've seen the need where customers are like, I want the scrapers to be able to scrape. They're just scraping too much. It's like, it's too expensive. We need to slow them down with their scraping. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they could rate limit that in the future. But I did not see that in the announcement. Uh, but you know, having it recently implemented WAF for a friend of mine for his website, yeah. you know, one of the challenges was you know he uses Moz, which is a pretty popular SEO tool, 
And all of a sudden, SEO Moz couldn't scrape his site and couldn't tell him what the SEO scores were and all these things. And so it was like, well, it's being blocked because they're not passing a header properly due to this rule. It just, you know, kind of <laughs> silly. And there's really no good way to exclude that other than just turn off the whole rule um, if you're using the managed rule sets or copying the whole rule set. And then I had to do a lot more management than I really want to do. So we just ended up disabling the rule. But this allows me to go back in, re-enable that, and then use this bot capability, which is quite great. Moving on to our next one here. Amazon is releasing the new Route 53 Resolver DNS Firewall. This is to help you protect against DNS level threats, particularly DNS exfiltration, which could potentially allow a bad actor to extract data through a DNS query to a domain they control. For example, if a bad actor controlled example.com, they could use a DNS lookup to exfiltrate data to sensitive data.example.com from a compromised instance within the VPC. So this is an attack where the attacker came in, got into your EC2 host, sees their sensitive data there, then wants to get it off the network, uh, and it does that through potentially a DNS use case. Customers prevented these operations previously by running their own DNS infrastructure, which Amazon hates because they want you to not have to do uh, repetitive work like that. And to filter DNS lookups was all done through your own infrastructure. Now, with the DNS firewall, you can protect against data exfiltration attempts by defining domain name allow lists that allow resources within your VPC to make outbound DNS requests for only the sites your org trusts. Uh, you can block malicious domains, deny DNS requests for known bad names such as phishing domains, and all fully integrated into the AWS Firewall Manager, giving security administrators a central place to enable, monitor, and audit firewall activity across all their VPCs and AWS accounts in the AWS organizations. Pricing this one is a little bit interesting. AWS will charge you a fee for each domain name stored in a domain list within a rule group. Uh, so no fees charged for domains named within the managed domain list, which are the managed ones from Amazon. But if you make your own list of 1,000 IP addresses, you'll be paying basically point zero 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 five cents per month for each of those and you'll pay uh, 60 cents per million requests uh, or queries processed by the dns firewall you are charged for the queries against the managed domain list but you are not charging for the entries in the list since you know it seems silly to pay for twenty thousand ips <laughs> or domains in that list uh, so you're only paying for the queries against that list which is nice Awesome. I'm just waiting for the next feature, which this ties beautifully into, which is Peter's prediction and all our wish list items for um, managed egress to known domains. They did that, didn't they? Right before uh, reInvent. Yeah. And they announced it before reInvent so that I didn't get my point after using that prediction for 10 years in a row, even though we've only been doing this for two years. Oh, the Adban the proxy. Yeah. Yeah, layer seven. It's hidden in that other product somehow. I forgot what it was, but yeah. I got my point stolen from me because they announced it like the day before. Nice. We can go back to the episode to listen to my anger. It was in there. <laughs> <laughs> this feature, though, it's it's kind of interesting because, I mean, I get how, like, defense in depth and it's smart to be able to have this capability. But if I own a machine in a VPC, something tells me I don't have to depend on DNS to figure out what IP address I want to exfiltrate data to. Like that that's a bad example, I think. Potentially. But you know, it's also, you know, a lot of security sometimes feels a little theaterish. <laughs> so a lot of automated tools may be using DNS or using other methods like DNS to do this. So it gives you some protection. But yes, you're right. If you have IP addresses and you can do DNS directly to an IP address, then yes, that potentially may not help you in this particular case. Well the the nature of DNS so you could lock down your VPC to, to allow no egress, but you still have to allow DNS queries to a resolver somewhere, whether it's a Windows domain controller or, or some other DNS server. And the way recursive queries work, you could still exfiltrate data out even though you have no egress out directly from the VPC through that chain of resolvers. So this is really the only solution to blocking exfiltration through DNS. Oh, Shows what I know. So basically, get data out via DNS queries. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, package up pieces of the data into either the request or an, or you can send fake responses back containing fake DNS responses with your data in it. God, it'd be so much easier to get a job than figure all that out to make money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're basically doing a DNS text lookup, and inside that text lookup, you might have part of a binary object. And then you right. know you do a bunch of those in, sequ in sequence. You then take it on the other side, and you basically put it back to the other side. You decode it, and now you have the data you're trying to exfiltrate. That's what you're trying to do here. If you allow DNS outbound to any server, <laughs> an IP address will not protect you. But if you're using this is your only way to get out of DNS is through this method, then that's how they would do it. Yeah, there's been some pretty sophisticated hacks using DNS. So not only data exfiltration, but worm triggers and all kinds of crazy stuff that uses DNS. Like it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, people who are running bind servers in their data centers these days, managing DNS, like I, I just couldn't imagine trying to secure that 
in this day and age. I, I'm so glad to just offload that to a third party, either one of the cloud providers or even some of the companies that specialize it in, in like Dakamai or, or Newstar or some of the others. I just, I don't want to be in that business anymore. It's a terrible, terrible place to be. Yeah. Not to mention how cheap it is to get it from companies who spend all the money to do it right, just because it's so easy to do that once and scale it out. You know, for those of you who have been in the AWS ecosystem for a very long time and you've used tools like Datadog or PagerDuty, Dynatrace, New Relic, et cetera, you have complained about something. And I can guarantee that it is CloudWatch metric APIs. And it's particularly two of them. It's the get metric data and the list metric API. And you hate them because to use a third-party monitoring tool instead of CloudWatch, you then have you know to monitor native Amazon services. You still have to call CloudWatch to get them. And Amazon loves to charge you for that rate. So you collect this data into metrics, and then you want to get that data into uh, Datadog or into some other third-party tool like SignalFX. You are now being charged to actually get that data out of your system. Which is great, especially when that bill potentially could be more than your entire signal effects or Datadog bill and or larger than your entire Amazon infrastructure, which I've heard companies have that problem depending on how you tune these things. And so, you know, after years of complaining and Twitter threads and all kinds of terrible terribleness, Amazon has finally fixing this problem. So AWS partners use CloudWatch metrics to create that monitoring, alerting, and cost management tools like I just mentioned. And they must take their systems and scale up fleets of servers to basically do those get API calls. And so Amazon saw all these third-party companies building out fleets of infrastructure that they're running to basically go to get list metrics and get metric data. And basically they're saying this is undifferentiated heavy lifting and we're going to fix that for you. Now, AWS partners can now access CloudWatch metrics faster and at scale as they are launching CloudWatch metric streams. Instead of polling, uh, which does also have a delay, metrics are delivered via Kinesis Data Firehose, and this is a highly scalable and far more efficient and supports two important use cases. The first, of course, being the partner services. So you can stream metrics to Kinesis Data Firehose that writes data to an endpoint owned by the partner. So you don't pay for that. The partner does. But they're now reducing their fleets, hopefully, to not have to worry about fleet management. Uh, and this allows the partner to scale down tier polling fleet and build tools that can spawn more quickly when key cost or performance metrics exchange in exactly ways. The other advantage is for you, because you know you can build a data lake, which stream metrics to a Kinesis data firehose that you own. From there, you can apply any desired transformation and then push the metrics into S3 or Redshift and take advantage of various analytics tools from AWS. When configuring your streams, you can leverage either the binary open telemetry 0.7 format or the human readable JSON format. And each metric stream resides inside a region and delivers metrics to a single destination. So if you have a partner as well as your data lake, you'll set up multiple streams all available to you. Things you should keep in mind on this one, available in all regions except for China. You pay 0.003 per thousand metric updates and any changes a charge associated with the Kinesis data firehose. CloudWatch metric streams is compatible with all CloudWatch metrics, but won't send data with a timestamp more than two hours old. And there are several launch partners who are very excited to reduce their fleets, including Datadog, Dynatrace, New Relic, Splunk, and Sumo Logic, with many more coming down the path. And so uh, I wanted to compare this, and so I had I did some math, and I had Jonathan check my math, which he said was good. And so this should cost less than the old Git metric data and Git list data. Uh, so an app running 24 by 7 for 30 days and emits 10,000 metrics every minute would be basically 432 million metric updates per month, or $1,296 a month for the CloudWatch metric streams. It'll cost you $5.97 in Kinesis Data Firehose, and the data out to a partner will cost you $18.45, costing you a whopping $1,320.42 per month with a new model. If you're using the old model of GetMetric Data, and this does not include the list metric capability because I did not have the math to figure that one out, the 432 million metrics will cost you $4,320.05, meaning you're saving about three-fourths of the cost. They didn't even mention that those API calls count against your API limits on the account, which could cause all sorts of other problems. Yes. I mean, now they just need to figure out how to do security tools in this method, and they'll be really set because that's the last bad, <laughs> the last bad actor on API usage limits that I'm aware of. Oh, yeah. There are options that like AWS config can send data out through a stream as well. There are ways to do, fix that for security tools as well. Just I haven't seen a lot of the vendors take advantage of that yet. Maybe I can make you some money back with the next announcement, though. So if you're using the AWS Lambda at Edge and have transactions running less than 15 milliseconds, you are just receiving a price cut. As Lambda at Edge functions now bill at the 1 millisecond level down from 50 milliseconds. So if you had a 10 millisecond function, it would get automatically rounded up to 50 milliseconds no matter what. And this is super beneficial if you're just doing lightweight functions like modifying the header or doing a very simple URL rewrite that tend to have a short duration. Uh, you may save up to 90% on this particular change, which is pretty great. Uh, this applies to all four Lambda Edge event triggers, including viewer requests, viewer responses, origin requests, and origin responses. 
which is a nice price cut. Yeah, let's go back to right before the cloud services were available. And if you needed network gear or a server, your minimum billable increment was five years, basically the amortization of the box. And now we're down to one millisecond. It's pretty good progress. Yeah, it's pretty great. And you know, also ordering a server took six months to a year. And now it takes, you know, three seconds with a with an API call. So, uh, you know, it, it makes me wonder what people are actually using Lambda Edge for, if this is a very common use case that, you know, you're doing URL rewriting in the in the edge. It seems, you know, I, I get why you're offloading from the web server tier, but man, like those are very, really weird use cases, actually, for what I would think you'd be using Lambda the Edge for. I don't know. I've got a whole proxy service that spends most of its time just presenting a whole bunch of different S3 buckets and APIs into a single namespace that the customer sees. And so if you could move all that out of proxy service into the edge, it would probably cost uh, about the same as it costs right now because it all runs on T2 medium. So (laughs) still, (laughs) I could say it was serverless and that counts as something. That's right. (laughs) But I mean, that's up to like a a potentially up to 50 times decreasing cost for something like that. I, I assume it reflects the change that... Uh, some kind of optimization that Amazon have made in the way the Lambda Edge service runs in general. I mean, the, the, there must be some overhead to spin up those containers. Well, what they're using is they're using this CloudWatch metric streams. And so <laughs> now that they don't have to have such a large fleet doing get, le- get less metric APIs, they can now reduce that cost to you. That's all. Can you imagine if they did the same tracking that they did when the first billing file came out, right? You had one uh, one row in the billing file for each hour that anything was used. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. How big would oh, the file be if it was yeah. one row for each millisecond? All your savings would be spent in S3. Yeah. Yeah. You no longer can use Excel. You don't have to use you know BigQuery to process your cur file because you can't open it any other way. Many, many years ago at a prior life, I sat down with the Amazon VPC product managers and they promised me that they would deliver to me a solution for VPN throughput. And over the years, they have through things like aggregation and other things. But what they had promised me at the time was that they would eventually have MaxEx support. Uh, MaxEx being the IEE 802.1AE Max security standard, uh, which allows for encryption of 10 gigabit and 100 gigabit dedicated connections at select locations available to you to do your encryption instead of using TLS VPNs. This is now available to you, though, uh, finally, three years later. Thank you for that. At select locations for Direct Connect. Before this, securing data, like I mentioned, required aggregation. And with the release of MaxSec support, Direct Connect now delivers native, near line rate, point to point encryption for 1 gigabits and 100 gigabit dedicated connections, ensuring the data communication between AWS and your data center, office, or colo remain protected. Uh, this is currently supported in several different data center regions, uh, but it is really tied to the Direct Connect partner itself. So if you're in Tokyo, there's probably a, be a Tokyo partner, but it may not be all of the Tokyo Direct Connect partners. So do check the availability on the website as your partner may or may not be able to support MaxSec, um, although they do expect to roll this out to all partners as they enable MaxSec ports uh, over the next few months. So you do, do keep track back or do check with your vendor if you're looking for this capability, which I think is really great. I wonder if that's the the, the cause for the delay was really getting the partners on board and the, you know, uh. they have to invest in the hardware and, and change in process and all that. It's very possible that that's a large part of it. You're seeing the partners, you know, Equinix being one of their big partners in this space, who's one of the ones that has a lot of these. You had to wonder then, does you know, Google suddenly get this capability and Azure as well? Because they're also doing direct connects for those vendors too. Um, so I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised to see a future announcement from those vendors saying they also are supporting MaxSec now. It should be a pretty good cost saver for, I mean, I use case right now where we have a couple of hundred VPNs, three, 400 VPNs running over to reconnect because that's the only way we could get the data from A, from a to B. That's an awful lot of VPN gateway connection hours that we could eliminate. I mean, it's potentially tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of savings. Not to mention the support and the uptime, the VPN termination hardware, like all kinds of stuff. Yeah, this is why I wanted it three years ago. <laughs> so, and they promised me it would be there next year. And then we met with them again and they said, no, we didn't make it done this year, but next year. And now three years later, I finally have it. So I appreciate that. And technically, today is my birthday. And so it's a birthday gift to me. So I'll see it. You've earned it. <laughs> yeah, I earned it. It's mine. Well, CodeGuru also has gotten several Easter gifts this week as well. The first one being, of course, while CodeGuru is Amazon's ML tool to help you review code and improve code quality with recommendations powered by machine learning and automated reasoning. And they have two great updates this week. The first one uh, is Python support is now generally available with a wider recommendation coverage and four updates related to the Python detectors. Uh, And those four updates include increased coverage and precision for existing detectors related to standard libraries, data structures, control flows, and error handlings. Improved detector for resource leaks. Previously, apparently only focused on open file descriptors, which I don't think they mentioned when they said they added this, that it was only one type. 
but now it generates recommendations about broader set of potential resource leaks such as connections, sessions, sockets, and multiprocessing thread pools. Uh, there's a new code maintainability detector to tell you how maintainable your code is, how hard it is to read, etc. And then a new input validation detector to identify situations where you may not have validated something properly. So the example they gave was, you know, you, you have an environment, CLI input, dev stage or prod. Uh, to perform an API call, and that then returns a resource ARN as an output, for example, but you didn't validate the environment name, and so CodeGuru Reviewer might suggest you implement some additional validations for that kind of thing. This does not cover the CodeGuru Profiler, which is the performance analysis tool. Uh, that is still in preview. This is only the code review for the CodeGuru. Any questions on Python or thoughts? Well, when this goes down next week, it's probably just because I started loading my code into it, and it just couldn't handle all the things that it found and just locked it up. But I look forward to testing this out and seeing just truly how bad I already know I am. I'm really looking forward to that code maintainability detector because your code is not maintainable in any way, but <laughs> even with you. So that's the part I'm most excited about seeing the score for. <laughs> but I see if it actually offers suggestions like transforms your, your bad code into good code. Now we don't need devs. Now we're back to no mm-hmm. code, guys. Yeah. <laughs> can we, yeah, can we just get it so it writes the code? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's coming. Exactly. So when I, when I told Ryan about this capability, he said, yeah, but it'll cost me an arm and a leg. And that is actually the part two of this announcement. And that is there's a new predictable pricing model for CodeGuru Reviewer. Previously, they had reduced the cost in this, and we said that was a great step forward in the right direction, but still relatively terrible because it's still you know measuring you for you know, how many lines of code you're doing. They did go to incremental updates versus fulls all the time, so that was helpful. But now they finally kind of met the right balance, I think. And so the uh, previous pricing structure was based on lines of code analyzer per month, either in a pull request or a full code commit. And now the new version is 75 cents per 100,000 lines of code. 75 cents per 100 lines of code. That's how you use charge. It's now a fixed monthly rate based on the total size of the repository. So $10 per month for the first 100,000 lines of code across all connected repos and a $30 per month for each additional 100,000 lines of code. This does not count empty lines of code or comments, which is one of the problems that people used to complain about as well. So it only counts the actual code that is code in this number. You still have the ability to incremental review and up to two full scans per repo per month in the monthly rate. Additional full scans for all the lines of code will cost you additional $10 for 100,000 lines of code. The new pricing will start in April for new repos entered on April 6, 2021. And AW expects the majority of use cases to see a considerable cost reduction using the new model. So yeah, that's a huge savings at $10 per month, which would probably cover most people's repos for Python. Because if you're running Python code that's over 100,000 lines of code, I, that's, a, that's aggressive. Yeah. I mean, you still don't want to hook this up, you know, to every PR and, you know, that it's still somewhat, uh, you know, you want to run it when you're ready to move on to the next development step in the lifecycle. Well, with incremental review, you can, st- you know, that, that part's unlimited still. So you can do every, you know, every push you want to. Because that's one of the things they commented in the article is that developers wanted the ability to do it more often to catch things quicker. You know, so the really the one that you still can't do regularly is the full scans because you only want to do two of those a month before you start charging extra. So that might be where you're at a big milestone. But for your just, you know, I just did a push because I did I finished coding for the day. It can do those as part of the incremental changes and that'll cost you nothing above the original cost. Well, I keep finding reasons to complain about this, but they've already fixed it all. But <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. And when can we hook it into GitHub Actions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not very long if it's because it's GitHub actions are pretty extensible. It does support GitHub today and Bitbucket and a bunch of others. I saw that in the article. But GitHub, GitHub Enterprise, AWS Code Commit, or Bitbucket are the th- solutions. But they do not mention code actions right now. Analyzing your Google's Kubernetes and Google Cloud engine logging has gotten much easier for you this week as they have now released an open source set of JSON dashboards that you can be imported into cloud monitoring to help you quickly analyze logging volumes, log-based metrics, and information about your logging exports across multiple projects. Once imported, the dashboards can also help alert setup and set up custom thresholds all for you. I don't know why it has to be I have to go to a GitHub repo and I have to download the JSON and then I have to import it into cloud dashboard versus why isn't it just connected to the product and I just say I want this dashboard and it ports it over into my account. I don't understand the extra manifestations of going through GitHub uh, to pull it down or that's a little weird to me. But other than that, I, I like this idea that you're getting you know, common dashboard frameworks uh, that you can just kind of plug and play with. I think the delivery is sort of based on the sort of the expectation. Well, if you're if I'm pulling it down from GitHub, I'm not going to necessarily call support when it's not configured right or has a typo or something like that. And it's also sort of an indicator that it's you know supposed to be customizable to my workload. But then also when it gets updated by you know Google or other people, you don't get that benefit. All my stuff's out of date. 
it's like onboarding to a product with a pull request. It's it's not really the best model. <laughs> no, no, that's very much true. I do think this is you know one of those things that for workloads is super important just because there's not a lot of visibility into logging outputs and volumes and it's often very much ignored. And so when you sort of visualize and highlight the logging that, that your application is emitting, I think you gain a lot of visibility. It just, you know, spurs that critical thought into do I really need to log every every single action? Is this these print statements really necessary? So is this the first kind of hint at people complaining about costs at GCP? It might be. Yeah. Mm, that's an intriguing thought. Mm. They want to know their logging volumes because it's costing them a fortune. Yeah, a potential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the beginning of Q2. And so typically companies are going through their quarterly goal setting process. And you may have been given a task of implementing ML or AI for fraud, chatbots, document recognition, machine learning queries for BigQuery, etc. And you're a developer sitting there going, I don't know how to do any of that. And I'd like to learn. Google's got your back this quarter uh, with free training uh, for Document AI, Explainable AI, Looker, BigQuery ML, and Dialogflow CX uh, with several different sessions throughout the month of April. Do check that out as those are fantastic introduction classes to all of the things machine learning and AI at Google. And I highly recommend checking that out if you aren't actually tasked with the task in Q2 to do those things, but you know you still want to learn something about these products. They're great training opportunities. Look out to Q3. Yeah, maybe you'll get this project in Q3. You never know. Well, a Google Cloud Database Migration Service, or DMS for short, uh, which they might have stolen from Google or from Amazon, I'm not sure, is generally available uh, supporting MySQL and Postgres migrations from on-premises and other clouds to Cloud SQL. Later this year, they also support Microsoft SQL Server this tool as well. You can start using the DMS today at no additional charge. And DMS has several key features that they feel different from other tools. Uh, first of all, it's a simple experience for lifting and shifting your database, and they think that shouldn't be complicated. Database prep, secure connectivity, migration validation should all be built into the data flow and all part of the product. Uh, minimal downtime, of course, you know, no one likes downtime and your database especially doesn't like downtime. And so they're all about the fastest cutover and minimal database downtime possible, the DMS tool. And they take reliable and complete, leveraging the native replication capabilities, maximizing security, fidelity, and reliability, as well as it's serverless and secure. So you don't need to worry about provisioning or managing migration-specific infrastructure. I try not to be negative for every single topic that comes up in this, on this podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, when you start off with lift and shift, it, like the PTSD sets in, and Jonathan starts twitching. Exactly. I'm like everything. Everything is beautiful on paper like this. Oh, it's it's easy and secure. Nothing could be easier. Click click of a button. But we all know the reality is is not like that at all. <laughs> This database migration service, unlike Amazon's, you know, seems like it's just moving MySQL to MySQL or Postgres to Postgres, where that's a relatively unknown thing, and you can do it with your own homegrown tools as well. You know, you get into like Amazon was saying, oh yeah, you just use the database migration service to do a schema change from Postgres to MySQL, and you're like, yeah, I don't know if it's quite that simple. <laughs> that's where that one typically catches you on a rough edge very quickly. It's always good to have these tools. It's always nice to kind of take away some of the, the manual work. And if you can use this tool and it works for you, then great. But do test uh, before trying to do your production cutover. I'd like to hear from people who've used this service. I mean, either the Amazon service or this particular service. And find out, like, did you use it? Was it success? Did you use it? And then stop using it partway through because you realized it didn't cover some important use case. I kind of feel like it's the kind of service which exists for people who don't know what they don't know yet. And, uh, and it'll lead to discoveries. <laughs> well, I can share some feedback because I, ironically, the first time I used AWS DMS was to migrate from a GCP MySQL over to AWS. So uh, who knows, maybe the next, maybe I'll use this one to, to do the opposite. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought the AWS DMS was super valuable, super easy to use. It had some shortcomings, but there are things that I don't think you can definitely build into a managed service. Like you can't just depend on it to overall migrate the schema. But once you get the schema sorted out, uh, especially if you're changing between versions of product, but once you get the schema sorted out, the DMS was super cool because it took care of the bulk data migration. And then it just constantly keeps that moving, just like, you know, read replicas or similar, but it just made it so easy to, to do constant iterative testing prior to migration. And then you know that when you're ready to do the migration, you're a really, really short maintenance window away from getting that done. 
by stopping traffic at the current site, letting it finish its synchronization, and then flipping over. So I found the Amazon one super valuable, even with the shortcomings. Nice. It, does it have some way of validating the, the data that you think has been moved has actually been moved? I remember working on a migration like this before, and the question was, well, great, you set up replication, and great, you've got log shipping, but how can you prove that the data in the destination is the same data as you had in the source? <laughs> There's no validation feature that I discovered, but we did our own validation and had high confidence in the results. Hey, everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. They are now introducing request priorities for Cloud Spanner APIs. Uh, so you can now specify low, medium, or high uh, for all your Cloud Spanner API requests. Internally, Cloud Spanner uses priorities to differentiate which workloads to schedule first in situations where many tasks attend for limited resources. And this may be important if you're using uh, your Cloud Spanner instances for mixed workloads. As a distributed system, Spanner is designed around multiple parallel tasks at a time and regardless of their priority. But if it's important to you, you can give it a hint and it'll try to take that hint. Although it may not listen to your hint, they did clarify in the article, they will still do the right thing for their system. But uh, if you think this is a high priority, they will try to get your high priority work done sooner. This just lets me know that I have no idea how Cloud Spanner works under the covers because that's crazy town. But, you know, it's pretty cool. Although I foresee a future where everyone's just blasting it with high priority requests and it's all. Then they have like ultra premium priority. Hmm. This isn't Azure. <laughs> well, but it's it's <laughs> it's going to be your priority on your requests relative to your other requests. So I think that this type of feature is going to be like, okay, right now it's not perfect, but this is the direction that will lead us to what I believe cloud computing should be all along, which is that when I log in, I want to see all the processors that I'm paying for at 90%. I don't want to see 90% of it 20% because each individual workload is has to be provisioned to the peak. And so prioritizing workloads is a great, in general, is a great way to be able to run, you know, dev and stage and prod and a bunch of different things and make sure if you're prioritizing prod that you can get your money's worth. And sure, maybe dev and, and or stage slow down during certain high times for prod, but you're really able to get your money's worth out of uh, all the resources that you're paying for. In a way, you'd almost think it's kind of like bidding on the compute available or the resources available. Like each team who wants to be a consumer of that should kind of come along with a with a price and say, hey, I'll give you 25 cents to run my query. And if somebody says, I'll give you 30 cents to run my query because it's of higher business importance, then you run theirs first. I think, I think I mean, everything, everything comes down to money in the end, right? <laughs> I see it failing in two ways. First of all, security going, no, you can't mix those workloads together because data sovereignty and, and all the data, right? And the second one is the developers are going to be like, all my stuff is high. I don't know what yeah, you're talking exactly. about. <laughs> <laughs> but if they have to pay for it, then maybe it's not. Right. Yeah, so maybe. Force, force people to think about the cost. All right, moving on to Azure. Microsoft PowerFX, the open source low-code programming language, is now in public preview. Uh, Microsoft's new low-code programming language lets you use visual tools and capabilities such as Visual Studio Core, GitHub, and Azure DevOps uh, with custom connectors for APIs with JavaScript, C Sharp, and other professional languages. And there are several guardrails to prevent runaway code and other common pitfalls all available to you. We will talk about this more when they release more details on their open source low-code. But you know, we haven't mentioned low-code in a while, so we had to pick on it a little bit. PowerFX low code. I like how they're enabling connector APIs for professional languages. You know, just even in the wording, like they just can't get the wording right on any of these things. Oh, not, yeah. ci- not citizen languages, yeah. but professional yeah. languages. <laughs> not bespoke languages. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was, uh, I was looking for this and I was like, oh man, PowerFX, terrible name, open source low code. And then, yeah, like customer connector for APIs with JavaScript, C Sharp, where the real work happens <laughs> before it goes into our WYSIWYG. Just kind of silly. 
least he didn't say real programming languages because that just that gets everyone's heckles up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Oracle WebLogic can now be run on Azure Virtual Machines with a custom build that Oracle and Azure are partnered with. And for some reason, you're running Azure for Oracle WebLogic workloads. That's very interesting to me, and you should definitely reach out to me because I have questions for you. Azure is announcing a major release jointly developed with Oracle. The software and the partnership includes WebLogic, Oracle Linux, Oracle Database, as well as interoperability with the OCI and Azure. And of course, uh, WebLogic is a key component enabling Java workloads, apparently on Azure, and according to this press release. Do you know why people are running WebLogic on Azure? No. Because they have to. There's some product requirement that will only install. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I'm certain of it. Oh, yeah, my God, that's great. Yeah. I don't know how many Java apps, I mean, these modern Java apps these days are being built on top of WebLogic. It was PEA, right? You know, people were really big on WebLogic, and then Oracle bought them, and everyone stopped talking about WebLogic really quickly. <laughs> it was pretty. But it's going to be those workloads that are left, and there's no option. Yeah, it's going to totally be those. Weren't they independent before BEA? That's some tech history I don't have yeah. memory of. But uh, I do I do remember BA owned them at one point. But yeah, they might have been yeah. independent before that. And then BA sucked them up. And then Oracle bought all of them. Well, apparently the Army is going to move ahead with Microsoft HoloLens-based headsets from prototyping to production phase. This is for the Integrated Visual Augmentation System, or IVIS program, uh, as it moves from rapid prototyping to production and rapid fielding. The IVIS headset is based on HoloLens and augmented reality from Azure Cloud Services. Uh, and apparently this is a contract for $22 billion or 120,000 devices over the next 10 years. So, uh, you know, you don't get Jedi, but you get HoloLens and augmented uh, soldiers. If nobody saw this coming, they're dumb. <laughs> like from the very beginning, it's like, oh, HoloLens. I know who I know who could use that. <laughs> it's exactly. only been like force fed to us from every Hollywood movie for right. the last twenty years, and you know, like I, it was none of the PR when they announced it had military use cases. It was all manufacturing and, and collaboration. But yeah, yeah. But no, the military has some very obvious use cases for this. But you know, it's, it, you know, if it was Google though, you know, there'd be protests in the streets for Google employees. So Microsoft employees are typically maristas. Well, Azure Orbital, which is the answer to AWS Ground Station, enables customers to communicate, control their satellites, process data, and scale ops directly in Microsoft Azure. And since they announced Azure Orbital in a surprise announcement to all of us, they have been rapidly building and deploying ground stations in all of their regions. They're now deploying multiple stations to enable Earth observation, remote sensing, and global communications. And they have provided us some photos of their first satellite ground station in their Quincy, Washington data center. That's a lovely white orb that looks like just everything you see in every other type of building out there in the world. So if you've ever been to Air Port and you've seen a white orb. That's a satellite dish talking to something in the space. Partnering with Thales Alenia Space, they are looking to bring near real-time geospatial data processing capabilities to their customers. And the power of processing data on the cloud with Azure Orbital and AIML helps their customers analyze environmental changes, capture the satellite imagery quickly, directly off the satellite itself into the cloud. So there you go. This is how we get robot destruction of all of us. Directly into the military HoloLens near you. <laughs> As soon as they decide that, you know, resources are finite, and they have self-preservation, you know, they can nuke us from orbit. Sweet. Fantastic. With AI and ML. So, you know, win-win. <laughs> I wonder if the military deals that Azure are doing will actually alienate other countries from wanting to use Azure as a service. The United States military industrial complex will just sell all that technology to those other countries to use the same Azure cloud services. So that'll be fine. <laughs> That's how that'll work out. Something tells me they'll, they'll still make all the monies. They'll be fine. Well, I have some Oracle news uh, for you this week. Uh, first up is Oracle's offering you free cloud migrations to lure new customers. And Oracle's willing to move your most complicated workloads to the OCI cloud. Oracle's counting on its free support to persuade organizations that have not made the switch or done so only partially to opt in for OCI. More than a thousand customers have apparently taken advantage of the cloud lift services, as they're calling this, over the last six months. And the program is now opening globally to anybody. Over the last nine months, Oracle has shifted over a thousand employees to the CloudLift service, hoping that you're going to come and move your workload to Oracle. You know, I, I wish this was a lightning round thing because I just, <laughs> I just have this vision of like Larry Ellison dressed up as Pennywise, offering free cloud <laughs> services like oh my from, from, the, from, from the sewer to people walking past. Join me. <laughs> <laughs> First one's free. Yep. Yeah. I, I think they're going to rename their Tesla service at reInvent to cloud, the Cloud Lift service. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, uh, this other article I, we normally wouldn't have talked about, but it had a, an interesting result. Uh, so Oracle and Microsoft have expanded their interconnection to Frankfurt, adding a third location in EMEA. Uh, and this announcement happened earlier in the week. Uh, and then uh, about two hours later, Azure Teams, Xbox Live, and Azure all went down. <laughs> 
Coincidence? Correlation? I don't know. April 1st, uh, Microsoft Azure Teams and Xbox Live suffered that global outage, eventually being blamed on DNS, as it's always DNS. And But my theory still stands. It was it was this Oracle Microsoft connectivity, I'm telling you. This is why you don't let Oracle into your data center. Like, you'll have DNS outages. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, too, that's ch- too challenging of a workload. <laughs> <laughs> DNS, yeah, that's a challenging one. You know, scaling that's hard. All right, Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? Sure. Let's start with Azure Kubernetes Service. AKS now supports node image auto upgrade in public preview. Uh, Product manager is like, man, Amazon and Google did it. We got to do it too. Part of the game. Let's How about more public preview on AKS? We've got the new run command feature. So you can run away from Kubernetes on Azure. (laughs) (laughs) Run, Kubernetes, run. (laughs) (laughs) amazon workspaces now has webcam support who wanted this feature i want to find them and we need to have a heart to heart (laughs) because this is like one of my last bastions of like i can't get on the webcam because i'm on my workspace and i can't do this and now you've ruined that for me or amazon thank you very much maybe OnlyFans is becoming a uh customer (laughs) (laughs) Training, training, training. I can just just imagine how many more failed attempts at getting a certification will will happen now because of the my webcam wasn't working on my workspace. Yeah, you got an excuse. Give me a refund. It's not my fault. It was workspace's fault. <laughs> it's always workspace's fault. Like, how, how do you plug the <laughs> webcam in though when it's when the workspace is running in the cloud? Very long cable. Very long virtual serial cable. <laughs> Amazon VPC Flow Logs announces out-of-the-box integration with Amazon Athena. Which was exactly the launch feature I said they should have had when they first announced VPC Flow Logs. Like, what are you going to do with it once you have all this data in S3? I don't know. There's no partners that support it. So, yeah, over a year and a half later, like, thank you. You finally did the thing you should have done at launch. It's a very well-known schema. It hasn't changed in years. Yet, it was one of the things that was impossibly hard to do with Amazon Athena. And I can't imagine that it has been any fun being the product owner for this service and having to listen to the same complaint from everyone going, <laughs> there's only like 17 fields. They're all the same. <laughs> they did add new fields to, to WAF like four or five months ago. We talked about it on the show. They did add fields. So, you know, your 17 fields, they added four more, I think. It doesn't matter because I still question if the out-of-box integration with Amazon Athena is what they promised originally too. So this doesn't work either. ABS WAF now supports labels to improve rule customization and reporting. So you just label all your data, do not let through, and then you're fine. Yeah, perfect. Wasn't me, just wasn't me. (laughs) Wasn't me, nice. Amazon EKS is now FedRAMP High compliant. That auditor, (laughs) that person's a saint. You had to learn EKS and then apply it to the FedRAMP compliance requirements. Ooh, that must have taken a couple of years easily. <laughs> so is that a harder to reach or easier to reach than FedRAMP sober? <laughs> <laughs> it's much harder to reach than FedRAMP sober. I can get there pretty quick. <laughs> I was going to use EKS, but I got high. <laughs> <laughs> but I got high. <laughs> that was perfect. AWS Budgets announces confirmation support for budget actions. As long as those actions aren't, stop the spending. What other budget action do you want? Just turn it all off. I want to notify someone who's not going to take any action. (laughs) AWS Systems Manager Parameter Store now supports easier public parameter discoverability. (laughs) He just deleted it. Uh, What a smart person. (laughs) Today's amazing new feature, tomorrow's new security vulnerability, as you've uh, found all your public passwords and public parameter stores. AWS Systems Manager Run Command now displays more logs and enables log download from the console. Thank you, Jesus. Because, you know, my number one command is, you know, restart Apache, and I just run it across SSM. And to get a log of that, I'd have to then set up an S3 bucket and a CloudTrail event. It was awful. I don't even really care if it ran or not. I just want to know if it failed, like what happened. And like before, it was this you know weird Rube Goldberg machine to find out. Now I can just look in the console. It's, thank you for that. Today's new feature is tomorrow's data extract vulnerability. <laughs> nice. Amazon EC2 now allows you to copy Amazon machine images across AWS GovCloud, AWS China, and other regions. 
I mean, for a really amazing feature announcement, the fact that they you know buried the other AWS regions at the end of the headline is a little weird. I think it should have just been AWS EC2 now allows you to copy Amazon machine images from AWS GovCloud to AWS China. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's how they want that to go out. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. It's crazy. AWS Systems Manager Parameter Store now supports removal of parameter labels. Which you'll be using to resolve that security issue from your public parameters discovered above. Yes. It's also where I'm going to remove all those labels I attach to those WAF, the WAF traffic to let my traffic through. Yep, there you go. Do not pass. So and now we have a very big announcement. I wanted to announce the new Amazon forecast weather index for Canada. I'm really worried about that weather forecaster up there in Canada, Jerry. I mean, what does the boot to do? <laughs> I forecast that it's going to be cold. <laughs> yeah. It's a heat wave at 20 Celsius. Uh, I'm just going to say sorry on behalf of the rest of my hosts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> other than seattle it's practically canada like we, we used to vancouver and seattle was, we went all back and forth all the time we're, we're friends it's fine anyone who makes fun of a canadian accent wins in my mind so the aboot gets it just rewarding bad behavior i don't know mm-hmm. if i can stand for this that is my job so <laughs> I'm, I'm still wrapped around wrapping my head around doing eks FedRAMP high compliance like just i kind of feel like i earned that one if I was in the competition, I totally <laughs> yeah, would have won. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. The sober, yeah. I, but, like, having done FedRAMP, like, that's... <laughs> just everything about that just makes me cringe. I don't, I don't think I want to do that in my career. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Peter. That was great. We have things coming up still. The summit, like we mentioned last week, are still coming up very quickly. By the time this comes out, you probably are missed the public sector summit. So, uh, although it's April 15th through 16th, in case you listen to the episode on launch day when we drop it. But the North America one is coming up May 12th through the 13th. Sign up for that, as well as LATAM, Canada, Asia, all the different places are available to you to check out for the Amazon Summit for all your Amazon Summit needs, as well as the Google Financial Services Summit on May 27th and the Discover Cloud Storage Solutions at Azure Storage Day on April 29th, which will bring us, I'm sure, ultra, ultra premium storage. So yeah, definitely check that out. And that is it uh, for this fantastic week in the cloud. Have a good night, you guys. Good night. See you and happy birthday. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions. Mm-hmm.